Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is One-on-One with Simon Wood. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from San Diego, California, and joining the show today from Claremont, California, is author and researcher Simon Wood. Thank you for being on the show today, Simon. Nice well, thank to, you for having me. Nice, nice to talk to you again. Why don't you explain to us what first got you interested in the Whitechapel murder case and in true crime in general? And give us a little bit of your background. Okay, fine. Um, I think I started out having about the same level of interest as anybody else. Uh, I was always intrigued by it. I think uh, I seem to remember my mother threatening me with a visit from Jack the Ripper if I didn't behave myself. So right from an early age, um, I was sort of keeping an eye out for this guy. Um, I read all the books. I watched all those terrible black and white British films in the late 50s and early 60s. But it wasn't really until round about the appearance of Stephen Knight's book that I really took any interest. I remember watching the Barlow and Watts docudrama, six-part BBC thing um, uh, about the Ripper, and it was all pretty standard stuff until the last episode where all the Prince Eddie Cleveland Street stuff came up. And my ears really pricked up at this. So my interest really took a hold at this point. Um, And then shortly afterwards, Stephen Knight's book was serialized in the evening news just prior to its publication. And I I remember reading this and uh, sort of gobbling it up greedily, thinking this was fantastic stuff. And until I got to the part... Um, about Sir William Gull tempting the Whitechapel ladies of the night into his coach with a bunch of grapes. And I burst out laughing at this point uh, and thought, this this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, I had two weeks vacation coming up and instead of going away somewhere, I decided to spend the time seeing what strength there was to, to the story. And within about 10 days, um, I'd found out all I needed to know about, you know, Cleveland Street, the, the secret marriage, Annie Crook not being a Catholic. And, and the whole thing fell apart sort of quite easily. And that's where I started. Now, were you already um, involved in the magazine The Bloodhound at this time? No, not at all. Um, this came along, oh gosh. Um, Ten, ten years later. Um, so you had, I, you had discovered all the information about Crook and Sickert at the time of the Final Solutions publication, but uh, did you just keep it to yourself until that Bloodhound article was written? Or No. Um, I, I'd found out um, all of the information that appeared in Bloodhound um, in round about 1975-1976 and I honestly didn't know what to do with it and um, I was friends through a mutual friend with Don Rumbelow um, who was really really super helpful and um, super encouraging and what I used to do was I'd I'd ring him on a sort of sort of daily basis and say hey Don you know I've found this I've found that diddly diddly do um, I, I don't know what to do with it. 
And he said, well, write it. And I said, well, yeah, I, I can't write. I'm not a writer. He said, no, good, just sit down and start and write it. So I, so I did this, and uh, I got to the end, and I still didn't know what to do with it. So I sent it to Stephen Knight's agent, whose name completely escapes me. And I had a very polite letter back saying, thank you very much. It's all very interesting. You know, I'm sure that, you know, Mr. Knight would like to get back to you and discuss this. But, of course, he never did. Um, and that's about as far as it got. So it was really all this stuff was uh, lying dormant for 10 years. But Knight acknowledged, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, in a, in a um, subsequent edition of his book, he did acknowledge uh, some recent research, I assume he was referring to your research, um, that he would address in a, in a new edition of his book, um, which never materialized. That's right, yes. Um, that's the, the, the closest um, I ever got to as a sort of acknowledgement uh, of what I'd done. Uh, but, but, nothing, but nothing came with that. So um, you never um, met Stephen Knight? In person. I did. Well, I did. What were, the, what were the circumstances around that? Well, again, Don Rumbelow, God bless him, uh, he introduced me to Stephen Knight um, at a meeting of the Crime Writers Association one night. And uh, it, was, it was a very civil meeting. We were both terribly polite to each other. And, uh, but he, well, he wasn't giving an inch. Not one inch. And, I, you know, it was a very pleasant meeting. I, I have no bad memories of him at all. Um, um, but nothing came of it. I, I certainly wasn't going to persuade him, and he wasn't going to persuade me. Um, and that was about an end to it, really, um, until, oh, quite recently, when Stuart Evans um, sent me a letter that uh, Stephen Knight had written to a friend of his. Um, I've, I've got the two sections from the letter here. Uh, just give you an idea of his, Stephen I's attitude towards me. And the, the first part of this letter, I don't know who he's writing to, the first part of this letter says, Sir Edmund Berry Godfrey and his festering wounds have so taken up my time and energy in the past few weeks that I have been unable to do any more about the work of Mr. Simon D. Wood, other than throwing some poisoned meat to his dog and shooting his mother. Wow. And it should be noted that your research into Crook and Sickert was the same materials that Stephen Knight himself had. I mean, you didn't really necessarily discover anything new I mean, he, from what I understand, the research materials that you uh, used to establish um, her religion and their um, inability to have been living on Cleveland Street, et cetera, et cetera, was information that Stephen Knight possessed at the time he wrote his book. I don't know if he possessed it, um, but, it but it was certainly there for him to find. It would have been no problem. So, you know, the, the, the only conclusion... Uh, that I can come to is that uh, he left out the bits which were inconvenient to his story. Right, right. And so, what uh, Bloodhound magazine? What what's um, the history behind that? I only know of that um, magazine from your article. I haven't seen a complete issue. Um, I had honestly had never heard of it. I'm not surprised. Out, outside of 
outside of your article um, demolishing Stephen Knight's theory. Can you tell me a little bit about Bloodhound Magazine? Sure. Um, I, I started it up in an idle moment um, to see where it would go. I bought um, Nigel Morland's current crime publication, which was basically um, an irregular book review of crime fiction and crime fact. So I bought that and all the sort of little bits that came with it from his son, I think, son or grandson. Um, and I thought that um, I, I would try and turn it into something a, a little more polished and a little more interesting. But, you know, I, I soon learned that, uh, you know, magazines are a, a hard thing to sustain. Uh, I kept it going for a year. And after that, I realized there was no long term mileage in it. And um, I, I gave it up as a bad job. It, it was a good he says in all modesty, as as far as it went. But um, over that year, how many issues were published? Six. It was every t- every two months. Okay. Um, which which is uh, yeah. Sorry, go on. Oh, have you uh, did like digitized the uh, editions, or do you do you have any thought of maybe um, releasing those in some some way, shape, or form? Because I certainly, would, I, I, me and probably a whole lot of other people would be interested in in, in uh, reading those. Well, what I'll do, I'll tell you what I'll do is uh, I'll, I'll send you a copy. Uh, I haven't got the original number one, uh, which had which contained the Jack the Ripper article. I um, I sent it to Dan Norder uh, to auction at the Knoxville Ripper Conference. Because I hoped it would, it, it might raise some money, and I also sent him my signed copy of "Who Was Jack the Ripper," the um, limited edition book brought out by um, Camille Wolf, and a hundred signed copies were produced. Uh, there were fifty-two contributors, and I had fifty signatures. Right, right. I remember that. Yeah, I managed to get A.P. Wolf to sign it, so I had 51 signatures. And I sent that to uh, Dan as well uh, to auction for the uh, Jeremy Beadle charity, um, Children with Leukemia. Right. And, and so the first issue of Bloodhound was auctioned off at the Knoxville conference. It was. So it, it, it's out there some somewhere. Somebody's the proud owner. Okay. So your interest in Jack the Ripper started um – in the well, aside from your childhood interests, um, you became a serious researcher sometime in the mid to late seventies. Then is that correct? That's it. Yes, uh, it's it's the first time um, I'd done any research in, in, into the subject or, or crime in general. I'm not interested in crime in general, um, so this was my first foray into research. I'm sure uh, since you've been in the field for that long of a time, you're. Your ideas about the case have evolved or changed, and you know over time. But but um, as far as uh, the Simon Wood of today, do you hold uh, on to any suspect theory about who Jack the Ripper was? None whatsoever. Does that put you in the camp of Jack the Ripper being an unknown local man, or do you hold out the possibility that some of the police suspects, the contemporary suspects? one of those could have been the Ripper? No. Um, I'm 
I'm coming to the conclusion that the, the Ripper is not this, was not this sort of cosy little game of Cluedo. Um, you know, we've all been playing for 121 years. It's, it, it really is bigger than any of us imagine. Um, and I know people hate the C word, uh, cover up or conspiracy, and I really wouldn't go that far. But certainly something was, something quite big was going on at the time. And <clears throat> this, this whole ripper thing, I, I really can't think think of the words. It, it, just a very small component of whatever was going on at the time. So that kind of leads me into a question that was uh, two two questions that were sent in from listeners. Um, okay. One um, asks if you believe that politics played a role. Well, political, the political uh, background of the happenings in Whitechapel. Um, whether um, this this question wasn't specific if he was referring to Fenians or or um, socialists or anything like that, um, but but do you believe that politics played a role um, in the police's inability to catch the Ripper, or if they did catch the Ripper, cover it up? And then another question um, similar along similar lines is: Do you feel the police officials deliberately misled the public with their various personal comments? Which would kind of point to a cover-up, if that were the case. Well, in answer to the first question, was there a sort of politi- political background? I, I think the answer is yes. And, and just as a little sideline on that, I'm, ch- I'm chasing up a lead at the moment um, as to where Anderson was when he said he was in Switzerland. And... I think when we get the answer to this, uh, and the answer will be will be forthcoming, I believe. Um, it won't solve anything in in terms of the Ripper mystery itself, but it will give us a really good idea to the political priorities of the time. We find ourselves in a in an odd situation with with Anderson. Yeah, here's a guy. Um, He's, he's just taken the job of assistant commissioner. Uh, the the special commission is looming. He's got terrific vested interest in this. Um, you know, there's the forger, um, Richard, Richard Pickett, so on and so forth. So he's got he's got a lot riding on the special commission, and I cannot believe that. You know, with the special commission and the Whitechapel murder, murders. Um, he's just going to take him off, take himself off to Switzerland for a spot of apres ski and a few yodeling lessons. Right. Um, so yes, the, the political background is very, very important. Was his quote-unquote trip to Switzerland? Was it illustrative of his lack of focus on the Whitechapel murders? He was distracted by other political events, so it would point to basically a, a uh, he he had other more important issues pressing than the Whitechapel murders and that's why he failed to catch the killer or was his trip to Switzerland somehow related to the murders that were happening in the East End? 
I think his trip to Switzerland was related to um, the the upcoming special commission. There, there was a lot lot riding on that. My my reading of it is that I don't think that at that time he he, he really held the Whitechapel murders in any importance, and I think at that time also that um, Commissioner Charles Warren didn't hold them in high importance either. Um, because I can't imagine that if they, if they did, if it was of supreme importance at that time, Warren wouldn't have allowed him to go on holiday. I don't think the Whitechapel murders got important until the murder of Eddowes. Where uh, we'll we'll come back to Anderson um, here in a minute, okay. but but just to um, uh, inform our listeners. How many victims do you count as victims of Jack the Ripper? Oh, very difficult to say. Uh, if I gave you my honest opinion, first of all, I'd say that that there was no Jack the Ripper. That, that's that's the first point I'd make. Um, I, I have no proof of that. It, it's it's my gut feeling. If I had to break down the canonical five, I would say. One and two were done by somebody for for whatever reason. Three, being Stride, uh, was a domestic. Uh, Four, Eddowes, done by someone else. And the Mary Kelly thing, it's a whole different ballpark. So you you believe that the murder of Chapman and the murder of Eddowes were two different individuals quite possibly and I'm sorry I'm not being cagey or evasive or anything like that I, I, I simply can't say at the moment uh, but that's that's my feeling that's that's the way my inquiries are heading and what about the non-canonicals um, because we're, we're going to talk more about the police officials and they all had varying ideas on how many women were murdered by this by a single individual and some of them like reed for instance included some of the non-canonicals tabram and um milet coles uh, what are your opinions on those and the torso murders even yeah in in suggesting um some sort of cover-up you can't have a cover-up in in which Everybody is party to, and this I think is is part of the reason why um, there are so many uh, various theories coming from the police. I think you know some were in in the loop, others weren't in the loop. I think uh, I think everything came to an end with, with Miller's Court for whatever was going on, but it would be. It would be very difficult um, for for the police to say, right, okay, at, at the time that this this brought an end to the matter, um, to to suggest that subsequent murders might have been the, the hand of the Ripper or, or, or whatever allows them allows the whole thing to sort of fade away. So when you when you say that some police officers uh, or officials were in the loop and some weren't, you're referring mm-hmm. to in the loop as far as uh, the cover up is concerned. So when um, Anderson 
um, reveals his Polish Jew suspect on the one hand, and but then Reed argues against. Um, although he, although Reed believed, or Reed stated that that he believed that the the Ripper was dead, it's a la a Druid type of uh, situation. Um, he believes that 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 individual wasn't dead until after uh, eighteen ninety one, so that would uh, discount a Druid. And so argue uh, people would argue that maybe Anderson knew more. Um, than what would have information than what would have trickled down to read as far as who the suspects were in the case. But what you're saying, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, is that detectives such as Reed would not have been privy to a cover up that was happening at the higher levels with Anderson. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. But I, I certainly think there would have been um, a, a, a trickle down of of rumor, perhaps. So many of these um, theories that come from the sort of lower down policemen kind of trace their way back to, you know, Druid or Kosminski, that a person who was either banged up in an asylum or, or committed suicide. So when Aberlene states that um, he just thought he knew, what, what you think is really going on is, is, not, is, is, is not that um, Aberlene... Um, it, it was that information was withheld from Aberlene that led him to make that kind of a statement. It was Aberlene in, who, who thought he knew <laughs> and, and not Anderson. Is that kind of, kind of where I, you're going? Well, if I, if I'm not a betting man, but uh, if I had to put a few bob on this, I'd say that the, the people most likely to have known what was really going on were um, Anderson Monroe, Abilene, and subsequently McNaughton. I'd, I'd put those four in the know. So when Aberlene made his comments about George Chapman and, and also responding to um, statements about the Polish Jew theory, uh, or no, or was the Aberlene, Aberlene referring to Druitt? I, I don't have... I, didn't do I think uh, I think he uh, I think he referred to um, the drowned doctor in the tent. Yeah, yeah, and right, he said, right. of, course, eh, "Of course, none none of us believe that." Um, so, so when Aberlene basically disagreed with the notion that shortly after Miller's court, the murderer was uh, found drowned in the Thames, you do believe? I mean, and in that in that same interview, he actually believed that that Chapman was a very likely suspect. Was that part of the cover up? Were these public pronouncements by these various officials part of the cover up? Swanson's marginalia naming Kosminski. Uh, you, didn't, you, you didn't include Swanson in your list of officials who might have been in the know. No. So what? I mean, you see, I, I, no, I, I didn't because um, right or wrong, I have grave misgivings about the Swanson marginalia. Okay, so just I'm trying to get my head around this. So, um, <laughs> is the, the Polish Jew suspect theory? That, that became the Aaron Kosminski suspect theory. Is it all just a big bit of false information that was released by these various police officials covering up the true identity of the Ripper? Quite possibly, but there's another, there's another aspect of, of this as well for all these uh, various theories that have come from policemen. All these policemen uh, who put out these theories were... Uh, 
I think I'm right in saying that they all they were all retired at the time. And I think that there, there was something about the case. Um, yeah, how can I put this? They, they, I think they kind of fancied themselves as the go-to guy if you want to know the truth about the Ripper. Right. Um, they were all, it was like a group of what we would call an alpha males. Who, yes. Who, yeah. Right. Hey. Who are all? <laughs> that dude? Yeah. Hey, if you want to know about the Ripper, you come and see me. I can't tell you too much, though. You know, if I tell you, I've got to kill you. Um, there's a certain element of that to them all. But nevertheless, you think that um, McNaughton and Anderson were on the same page as far oh. as who the, who the Ripper really was. I, I um. I think instead of who the Ripper really was, uh, a, a better phrase might be what the Ripper was all about. What do you believe the Ripper was all about? Oh, gosh. Now, if I could, I, if I could tell you that, Jonathan, I would be the richest man, <laughs> richest man on the planet. <laughs> so um, you, you haven't discovered the reason behind oh, their cover-up yet? No. Um, you, um, don't, you, I have, you have your ideas, though. Um, no, I, quite honestly, I don't. Um, what I'm doing, all I'm doing, I, I'm doing a little bit of digging here. I'm doing some digging there. I've got a fragment of this, a, a, a fragment of that, and I'm trying not to um, put any shape on my ideas. I, I want it to sort of take take its own shape. Um, I don't think this is a, a, a mystery that you can go into with any preconceived ideas so I think it's probably fair to say that you can't be sure that there was a cover up conspiracy going on but I'm trying to find out if there was and it, and it just certainly looks that way at the moment I've no idea what it was about does this at all relate to the political hot potato that I believe were comments made uh, by the son of Monroe is that right that's right. Um, gosh, I mean, there was there was so many hot potatoes going on around that time. Well, well because I mean, to me, and maybe to our listeners, it's it's sounding like I mean, uh, you who expertly debunked Stephen Knight's royal conspiracy theory are are in a position to substitute that with an even bigger conspiracy. Or maybe maybe not a conspiracy that reaches up into to to uh, the royal family, but nevertheless, um, um, you know, I mean, people people applaud you for disabling Stephen Knight's theory because that brought it back down to the local unknown in a way. Yeah. But what but what but what I'm hearing is that in reality, you you are. Are more leaning, not necessarily in the same fashion as Stephen Knight, but in the same ballpark that Stephen Knight played in. That that these that these weren't just the, the a simple matter of a sick individual on the streets of Whitechapel murdering prostitutes. That there was something bigger going on than this. Um, I, I, no, I, 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 yes, you, that's that's quite right. Um, you know, people say, well, "What could you know? What could be bigger?" Uh, you know, than the royal family. There was actually something bigger than the royal family. It's the British Empire. 
Um, and in, in doing a lot of reading, I, I discovered um, that some time before the Ripper murders, uh, a plot to bring down the British Empire had been thwarted. Now, that's pretty big. There was a, a, apparently uh, a, there, there was a plot afoot to disestablish the church in Ireland from the Church of England um, and, and to bring about uh, the, the downfall of the British Empire. And this apparently, and um, don't shoot the messenger, I'm only telling you uh, what I've read in quite a learned book, this, this plot was hatched by the Vatican, which kind of puts, you know, Prince Eddie in the shade. And, and, um, <laughs> and how would this, how, how does that plot, again, translate into the murder of four or five or six or nine practically homeless prostitutes on the street of the East End? I, I honestly, Jonathan, I honestly don't know. Uh, you know, on the face of things, it makes as you know, much sense to me as, as it does to you. Um, you know, there, there is this, this missing link. Um, but, but something was going on. Uh, such a play was made um, about these murders um, you know they were all, all these murders scream look at me, look at me see what I can do when you can't catch me you can't stop me but, you know, that's, not the, that's not the work of an insane masturbating Polish Jew or, or an effete barrister and these, this great carnival of um, Inquests by Wynne Baxter, which uh, played the whole thing out over two months. Three inquests ran for a total of 14 days, stretched out over two months. What's going on here? You know, Coroner MacDonald said, you know, all the jury's got to do um, is decide the cause of death. He managed to do that in a day. Um, you know, Wynne Baxter you know, stretched it out for a hell of a time, gave it far more publicity than it deserved. This, this, is, all, this is all part and parcel of it, the whole, the whole carnival of the Ripper. Sorry if I'm not making any sense. Different way of looking at the simple facts. I mean, I'm in total agreement that, that it was a carnival press frenzy. It, it was, um, for, for whatever reason, a series of murders that made worldwide news. And um, every individual, uh, uh, every uh, official in the case, whether it be a coroner or a, a member of the CID or the Home Office or whatever, seemed to want to get their two cents in. Oh, uh, yeah. For for whatever <clears throat> reason. Now, when you when when you look at the various officials, and you have McNaughton, who said that in in his response to the Sun article arguing against Thomas Cutbush being the Ripper names Druitt um, as the one most likely of the three he named. And in that is Kosminski. And then Anderson, with his Polish Jew theory, referring to Kosminski, but you lumped those two in the same, in the same group as in, who, who were in the know about what, what was really going on, um, which is an interesting take on it considering the camps that set up in the field of Ripperology where you seem to think that 
I mean, your theory of what from of what you're giving us today s- seems to to uh, point at the suggestion that a lot of us who are researching this case are just wasting our time. Um, in a way, people hold um, Druitt. You know, there there's from what I see two main two main groups as far as the names police suspects. There are Druidists who. And that's what they're called, for the lack of a better term, who believe the police officials who go on this drowned doctor in the Thames theory, as as riddled with holes as it is. There's the, the suspect who died shortly after the murders, and then there's the suspect, Kosminski, who was caged in an asylum. But what you're kind of saying is that those two suspect theories should be viewed as as a whole part of, of, uh, of just a series of disinformation. Yeah, I think so. Um, in, I think it's my most recent article in Ripperologist. Uh, if you, you, you look at the McNaughton Memorandum, everything traces back to February, March and April 1891. Yeah, his thinking doesn't go back any further than that. <clears throat> and from those three months, you can you can pick out uh, Kosminski going into the asylum. Um, there's the, uh, the, the Sadler investigation. Uh, there's the West of England MP. And there's the court appearance of uh, Michael Ostrog. All happened in those three months in 1891. That's where he got all his information from. And I think... Um, that all that Anderson did was have a read of McNaughton's memorandum and plump, plump for the Polish Jew. Subsequent stories about the failure of the fellow Jew to swear to him because it would be on his conscience and the uh, idea that in the case of Druitt, private information from a family member led to his suspect candidacy. All of that, where, where do you put all of that contemporary information in with what you're kind of saying all started in 1891 was it just cov- covering their tracks by making up stories it's it's interesting isn't it that um all all the so what why has mcnaughton come to this conclusion on the back of the family's suspicions why didn't the police know anything about it he's kind of you know keep, keeping the cops uh, out of things uh, with this remark, and the business about um, you know the um, the witness that refused to to, uh, to to swear to the Polish Jew because he himself was a Jew, I think is a bit of a double kick in the nuts from Anderson to the Jews. The whole idea of the Jew, I mean. Wh- I- I don't. I don't know that it's uh, so much of a symptom of like some would say is his of his anti-Semitism, but nevertheless, that that whole idea uh, was demolished in a subsequent article written um, countering that whole idea um, by by the uh, rabbi, I believe, where uh, he had stated that you know it, the Jews in Whitechapel were terrified, the men were afraid for their women. And why would a fellow, you know, it was almost like a stupidity on Anderson's part to even suggest that anything like that could have occurred. 
Oh, oh, completely. It, it, I believe it was the editor of the Jewish Chronicle right. uh, who, 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 who took Anderson to task for this, and, and quite rightly too. And Anderson had, had the temerity to write back and say, some of my best friends are Jews. Right, right. Now, we've heard, we've heard a variation on that remark right. before. Right. So, so you're, what you're doing, Simon, is basically making a very confusing case even more confusing. Well, I'm, a, I'm sorry to say, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> I, I hold my hands up and, and, and plead guilty to that. Um, all I can say in my defense is that what I'm doing is I'm taking every, sing, every single part uh, of this mystery and I'm, and I'm taking it to pieces to, to see what I can find. I've got I've got no hidden agenda. I've got uh, no surprise suspect waiting in the wings to be launched on an unsuspecting audience. Nothing like that. I'm just tr- honestly trying to find out what there is to be found, and I keep finding things. Let's step back for a second and talk about some of the uh, your research methods. Um, you had, for instance, the memo you posted on the Casebook message boards, and, and I've said in, a, in prior podcasts and to people individually that I don't necessarily allow the Casebook message boards to dictate the content of the podcast. But in this situation, mm-hmm. because so much of your information and is um, being made public on the message boards, I feel like I have to bring in some of the message board posts in this conversation. So your memo from uh, Sir Digby to Charles Thompson Ritchie. That, right. Now you, you had only posted a portion of this memo that pertains to a request that Anderson be asked to submit his resignation in the beginning months of 1901. That's right. Yeah. Is this all research that you're being that you're conducting independently, or, or, um, I mean, I, without being rude, I mean, you know, do you have someone working for you in London sending you this? Or what methods do you use to compile what what information you end up releasing on the Casebook message boards? And you had said that this was only a partial memo, and you got criticized a lot for that. For not revealing the context or, or, or the, the entire memo or your source or anything like that. So, uh, would you be able to elaborate kind of on on what your current methods of research are? Sure, um, I've I've broadened my uh, research into areas that are not strictly ripper. Um, I've. I've made certain friends and acquaintances uh, who um, have specialist knowledge uh, in political matters uh, and also intelligence matters. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the intelligence um, aspect of it is, is proving fairly fruitful. Um, and this, this was um, from my contact in in the intelligence circles. And this was the only piece of the memo that he had. Uh, and he also couldn't put his hand to 
the provenance because it was the, you know it was, it was the fir first question that I asked him. Anyway, I have sent to two researchers uh, known known to Casebook um, ex the exact information that I received fr from my contact in the hope that they can track down the full memo and give us the provenance and also tell us what the rest of the memo said. You know, might have said, you know, Anne's a wonderful guy, you know, sorry to have lost him. That's fine. It's fine. But before you um, established the provenance of the memo, I mean, I assume that it was because you were so confident in your source that without provenance, you would choose to make something like this public. I, I, I also did. I also did it um, f for another reason, and uh, and that was to to gauge the reaction. I and I assume the reaction that you saw was basically what you would have expected. Absolutely, it was it was really on on the nose, um, and well, I don't need to say any more, really. Now, um, you you uh, do not consider yourself anti-Anderson. Um, not not in the slightest, John. Not in the slightest. Um, you know, what's to be found is what there is to be found you know if if i find that you know he got he got a badge for helping old ladies across the road fine i'll post it i don't mind i've got absolutely no axe to grind with anderson right and i think that it the um, field of ripperology kind of seems to almost run on two tracks pro or anti one thing or another but what i'm getting from this conversation from you simon is you're on a track all by your own and and uh <coughs> And so, and, and so, uh, so certain bits of information that you might release that might seem to the people who are on the one track pro or anti Anderson um, needs to be viewed in the context of more of um, where you're coming from um, and your your research methods. You know, a lot of times information just thrown out there, like you tend to throw out information with no no context whatsoever. And it's judged by these the, these uh, these certain rules that seem to be applying to some of these suspects and some of these police officials, where where maybe um, some of the vitriol that occurs based on some of your posts wouldn't exist if if the public was more informed about you know the thinking behind your research methods. If that makes any sense. Um, oh no, no I, I I see exactly what you mean, but um, I, I you know I I really I really haven't sort of got any thinking, um, no preconceptions uh, behind behind my methods. Um, you know I, I've often I, I stumble across things I wasn't looking for. And we'll talk uh, about one other thing that came up uh, recently on the message boards, and then go into. Uh, um, Another bit of uh, Ripper history you're notable for, but but uh, you had um, a few months ago put up the uh, photo of Catherine Eddowes in the uh, gurney. And <laughs> this is going to haunt me for the rest. Of <laughs> I've got it. Well, 
<laughs> oh dear. What, what can I do? So there's, there's, there's I, a have, to I, I have to ask. Yeah, um, I know you do. I know you um, do. And and, and um, basically, <laughs> for those who didn't, who weren't involved in this this this, uh, this little. Uh, this little discussion was that um, <laughs> you, you, you had posted what was a cropped image of Eddowes. It was the only one I had, yeah. And and uh, and and as far as I know from the initial post, you just questioned the provenance of the photo. You asked okay. a general question: Does anyone know where this photo came from? Yeah. Um, and then it went on to you questioning whether or not um, it was Eddowes. And and I mean, it, it, in the end. Thankfully, you came back to you know uh, agreeing with once Stuart Evans provided you with a better photo um, of it. You seemed to have come back to um, thinking that it might be Edo's, but nevertheless, it leads me to ask you what your initial what where where were you thinking about going with that? Um, were, were you questioning? I mean, obviously, you're questioning whether or not it was Eddowes, but it seemed to be that you may, might have had in mind someone else it could have been. And and um, so I'd like you to answer that question as well as um, kind of elaborate on what your thoughts are about the, the victim photographs, what we know of them, their authenticity, and whether there are more out there and and whether the ones we have now should be held up to scrutiny as far as what we're what we've been told we are seeing is really what we're seeing gosh um it it's it struck me with the uh just let me get something out of the way here this thing that is going to haunt me uh about the Eddowes photograph i'm the lesson here is that if you think you've written something correctly uh check it and once you've checked it, check it again. And when you're really sure, just check it one more time. And I didn't. And um, Stuart, Stuart took, took me to task. Uh, what appeared in on my post was, she's in a boat. Right. Uh, it should have said, she looks as if she's in a boat. But uh, we'll, we'll let that go. I, I, ju- I just wanted to uh, get get past that. Um, it's, it struck me that the person in this shell um, is of a completely different physique to the woman in the more well-known Edo's photographs, one where she's standing up against a wall pinned by her hair. Right. And, um, I, and I actually agree with that. It, the the um, the photograph of the person in the shell does not resemble exactly anyway. The no, um, the, you know there are there, there are certain um, scars on the on, or wounds to the to the face that, that don't quite match up. Um, it must have been taken before the autopsy. Uh, if it was taken after the autopsy, we'd see the the autopsy. Um, sewing you know like a zip down down the center of the body um and if it was taken uh before then where are all the wounds to the torso so i was trying to sort of get to the point where this might not be uh, a picture of eddowes and might simply be um an honest mistake you know maybe it was 
one of a number of a picture that was found amongst other pictures of Edo's and was assumed to be her. Nothing sinister. Right. Um, the wounds, I mean, I, I kind of understood what you're saying because um, what, what basically took place was that, you know, people started to question the photograph based on you questioning the photograph. And, um, mm-hmm. and you, have, you have a habit of, like, introducing points or starting threads and then backing away and watch and watching as, you know, uh, the insanity ensues kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, but but what 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 ended up with that is that I mean in this fo- the photograph um, you can't see her breasts for instance no. and although everything around her torso um, uh, the detail of the photograph is pretty good um, with the exception of her midsection uh, which tends to get blurry at, at the least or just entirely disappear mm. uh, and. Um, and so then people were suggesting that she was covered with a plastic sheet. Well, so, so – and that's the first time I had remembered ever hearing of this possibility in regards to this photograph. So it's almost like you brought up this point and then to um, explain away your, uh, your, uh, your questioning of it, we invent – uh, a sheet being thrown across the top of the body or, or you know, a plastic, clear plastic or something like that to make up for these, for these, um, for these obvious problems that there are with this photo. Yes. Uh, um, and, and so, I, I mean, I, I thought, uh, uh, although you did, you know, end up coming around and saying that Stuart Evans uh, did um, set you in the right direction again, I, I don't, I don't. I don't disagree that this was a, a valid point to make on your part, um, but it also made me wonder if you thought possibly that the 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 corpse um, in the boat or shell or whatever um, might not even be female. For instance, I mean, you referred to the, it as the person in the the um, the photograph, it, not a female. Um, it's. Uh, it's uh, it, Yes, I did. Uh, I sort of I hedge my bets there rather, but it 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 does look like it looks more like a man than a woman in in physique and also lack of breasts. But clearly, her throat slit or the individual's throat slit. Oh yeah, um, Big time. and there's damage done to the nose. Yes, and there is a, a wound that appears to have been stitched up. Running from her sternum down, her, her I use the term her just because that's what I'm used to. Um, for running from the sternum down to the privates. So, it, I mean, those points are kind of, as you understand, are what what um, leads people to believe that it is a photo of Edo's. Um, mm. But I, I can kind of see your 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 side of it as well. Is that the you know there are. Facially, uh, it, she doesn't quite look like what what the mortuary photos look like, and and so I guess you know there is some further room for debate there, in my opinion, as far as you know who this is a photograph of. Yeah, um, it, I, I, I think it's important to, uh, to to query these things because so much. Um, information that we're dealing about um, with the case um, has really been accepted on faith. 
Right. Um, so, you know, a lot of other things uh, we need to question as well. But this, this is just one of them. It's just an example. Now, before we um, wrap it up, I want to um, clarify what, uh, before the whole Edo's in a Boat incident, what you were probably most well-known for, <laughs> and that is the, uh, the uh, FM on the wall of Mary Kelly's room. And, and I know you addressed this on a previous podcast, uh, the history behind you discovering or you, you believing there might be letters written in um, blood on the wall of Mary Kelly's room. And yeah. you, did, you, did cl- you did explain to our listeners back on a previous podcast the whole history behind this, but I still okay. see it being cropped up. Now, whether it's being mentioned by people who just simply don't listen to the podcast, which is a c- complete possibility, um, or, or if, if it's just something that's like you said uh, – uh, earlier about the Edo's photograph, things that are just taken at face value, you know, as a fact that just simply aren't true. And no matter how much you do to try to dispel this story, it's going to stay with you. Well, this one will run and run. So if you could um, take us back to uh, 1988, I believe it was, and describe for us the circumstances surrounding you seeing what you thought were letters um, written on the wall of the photograph in Mary Kelly's room and, and how that became used in the diary of Jack the Ripper pointing the finger at James Maybrick. Okay. It was, it was in 1988. Oh, sorry, not 1988. I'm not that old. Um, I was uh, doing the uh, Jack the Ripper lectures at the, I think it was the city darts pub in Whitechapel with Martin, Martin Fido, Keith Skinner, Sometimes Paul Beck, uh, he was living in Leeds at the time, so couldn't always uh, make it down to London. Um, and David Anderson was there occasionally. And the seminars were on a Saturday night, and I arrived this Saturday night, and I had to I tell you the book I, I first saw the letters in. It was the paperback edition of Daniel Farson's book. And I said, here, chaps, look at this. What do you think of this? And I pointed out what I thought was writing on the wall. I I imagined that in her dying moments, Mary Kelly had sort of dipped her finger in her own blood and written something on the wall. And all all of us pounced eagerly on this. You know, this is great. Um... And then we all went away and uh, thought about it. And I think the next week we met, we decided that none of us could um, actually work out what the initials were, let alone what they meant, and decided in the end that it was probably just some sort of photographic anomaly. And uh, we dropped the matter. It was as simple as that. But then, lo and behold, four years later, I think three or four years later, up pops the Maybrick diary um, and the comment about, uh, what is it, uh, a letter here, a letter there, something like that. Right. Um, I know, in the intervening three or four years, I never, never thought about it again, never thought twice about it. So it was a big surprise to me that it, uh, and of course, that, that then pointed back to me. And people thought, I'd, I'd had a hand in this diary thing, which I hadn't. 
And and you were even mentioned in Shirley Harrison's book by name as the I one. Was? I believe oh. so. Were, were oh. you not? I've never read it. Let's see here. I can have it right in front of me. Um, okay. Fame at last. <laughs> on page 100 of the hardback edition. Um, uh-huh. In 1988, the crime researcher and writer Simon Wood mentioned privately to one of our consultants that in a photograph of the dead Mary Jane Kelly on her bed, there appeared to be an initial on the wall. There, above the bed, is a letter M, the mark of Maybrick. To the side is another letter F. It is not a color picture, but the smudgy letters could easily have been written in blood. So... In that paragraph, they it's kind of you know plain loosey goosey. It says that you yes you as you've admitted let it uh, mentioned to uh, who's apparently someone who later became a consultant on Shirley Harrison's book mm-hmm. uh, the um, the initial so the FM on the wall that you, that you are known for um, was really just um, as you're saying just. Um, Hey, look at this. This looks interesting. And at the time, you didn't even believe that that you could identify the letters. No, not at all. But this, and we all we all tried. Yeah. So the photographic uh, anomaly ended up uh, catching the ears one way or another with Shirley Harrison, and she was able to, to um, point to that as evidence uh, against James Maybrook um, mm. in the Diary of Jack the Ripper. So I, I guess um, you know that you were mentioned by name. In the diary of Jack the Ripper, um, and then quickly followed by an explanation that the letters that you thought you saw were F and M, even though you yourself never had claimed that. Something that's unfortunately following you along, no matter how many times we try to set the record straight on it, it seems. So, oh, well, in oh. the end, people people will believe what they want to believe, which seems to be the trend. So you've alluded to on the message boards that you, what you're preparing. I don't know if you said that there, you were preparing some big announcement or something like that. Or you you indicate in your post that your research is 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 in your opinion leading you somewhere definite that could really shake up the case, and you're holding all your cards to the consternation of a lot of Ripper researchers. How soon might we expect some um, groundbreaking research? that could throw the case on its head from you, Simon Wood? Well, I hoped it would have, I hoped it would have been by now, but um, un- unfortunately it's not. Um, when it does come, it will come, it will come in book form. Okay. Um, I, d- I really don't think that, um, you know, that the, the internet is uh, a, a suitable vehicle for this kind of thing. Um, there's too many, too many people lying in ambush. Um, you know, by the time you've got out your first ten sentences, you know there'll be fifteen hundred posts telling you you're wrong, right. mistaken, and questioning your um, parentage. So you know, I'm, this this will this will come out as a book. Most of it is written because um, you know a lot of it is. Um, Standard stuff, but uh, I, I hope that the uh, uh, the, the things that um, I, I bring to the book uh, it may not completely solve um, the mystery, but will certainly 
open open it up for a much wider, far more open-minded approach to it. I, I, I think the days of uh, you know it was Drew it is it was Kosminski. Um, they they're dead and gone. I certainly look forward to it as it does many many others. I would imagine you're a unique researcher in this field, as as you probably are aware. You've been around the field for longer than most anyone and you've been touted by some individuals as uh, possibly the person who could most likely solve the case of Jack the Ripper in light of some of the you know um, the Eddowes boat incidences that you you tend to get yourself in along the way uh, you're still one of the most highly respected researchers and and every post that you uh, make on the casebook is read with interest, as you know, and um, so I'm sure any kind of book that you might be putting out would be highly anticipated. So keep us posted on that. I certainly will. Okay. and I want the royalties, you see. (laughs) And I guess that's where we'll wrap it up, Simon. So anything, any last words you would like to say before we call this a podcast? Um... I'd just like to say that uh, Jack, Jack the Ripper um, has taken me into areas that I, I would have never imagined beforehand. Um, I learned a tremendous amount uh, about uh, a whole pile of things. Um, and i just like to say thank you to all the serious researchers out there. Um, you know, if if I mention Don and uh, that young whippersnapper Evans, he'll know what that means. Uh, um, and 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 Deborah and um, loads of other people. Their, their, their contribution is, is astonishing. Um, and I I couldn't have done what little I've done without them. They've uh, they've been individually very very helpful to me so you know great big thank you to these guys they're wonderful all right well on that note i want to thank you simon wood you're one of my most entertaining guests i've ever had on the show and and i thank you very much for being on for this one-on-one interview today great pleasure jonathan thank you for having me all right thanks And that was RipperCast, one-on-one with Simon Wood. I want to thank Simon Wood for being a guest on today's show. I'd also like to thank Bunny McCabe, Stuart P. Evans, and Robert Clack for helping me track down the podcast artwork for this episode. We are a podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel Murders, available on the website www.casebook.org. If you have any questions or comments for myself or any of the guests that appear on the podcast, Feel free to contact us by writing to rippercast at gmail.com. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.